Thank you, Andrew. Thanks, guys. In 2014, we moved out to Lawrence, Kansas, uh, to plant Redemption Hill Church. And in January of 2015, we started meeting. And it's been a joy and a privilege for me to serve as pastor uh, for these past, I think that's seven years now. And it's also been a joy to serve along with others who were part of that uh, initial plant. And since day one, uh, Kerry Wilson has been a man who's had his shoulder to the plow, uh, serving uh, in a very visible and, and necessary way. And many of you have been blessed by the way that he typically leads us in worship. He didn't lead us today. Uh, but usually on a Sunday, you'll find him standing here leading us in the reading of scripture and in prayer and in worship. And just personally, one of the things that I have valued about him, and I think one of the things that um, has allowed him to serve so faithfully in that role is not necessarily the golden voice, although he has that um, in spades. It's not necessarily the, the musical creativity and the instincts he has, although I love those and they're great. Um, but what I love most about Carrie and what has, I think, blessed our church most profoundly is that Carrie has, Carrie has a serious passion for the glory of Jesus Christ. And the reason that he leads us well in worship, again, is not because of his musical ability. It's because he's worshiping. And as he often so gently reminds us, he is worthy. Christ is worthy. So Carrie's going to come and not lead us in musical worship, but he's going to worship with the Bible open in front of him this morning. And I hope that your soul, your heart will join in with him as he points us to the Christ who is worthy. So brother, you come and pray and lead us in worship with the Bible open this morning. Y'all hear me say this every Sunday morning, but what a joy and a privilege it, it is to be together with um, the body of Jesus Christ and to behold our Savior together and to look into his word, to worship him. Before we get into our, our central text this morning, um, I wanted to read together uh, three verses that are, uh, are supporting verses that really speak truth into the text we're going to be looking at. Um, and they are from Psalm 2, verse 7, Isaiah 42, verse 1, and John 1, 33. And uh, I think they're going to be up there. there they are. We can, um, I'm going to read these aloud together, and then we'll, we'll get into God's word together. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the world your possession. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And then from John chapter 1 and verse 33, John the Baptist says, I myself did not know him. But for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. Let's go to our God together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are before you, and we are before your word, and we rejoice, God, in the promise of your Holy Spirit to wield it in our midst to exalt Jesus Christ. And I pray... Um, as we open your word together, Father, that you would grant us, according to the grace that is in Jesus Christ, the strength to understand, 
grant to us eyes to behold wondrous things out of your law. And may Jesus Christ be glorified. We ask it in his name. Amen. Sundays, honestly, are just such an incredible day, um, well, for our whole church, but I, I, for, for the life of our family. I love Sundays. I love getting to be with you all. Um, and then there, another thing that I love about Sundays is after we go home, some of the traditions that we have as a family, um, one of which is to, uh, every Sunday evening, have breakfast for dinner. Uh, and so it's, it's always pancakes, eggs, and bacon. And then uh, after breakfast or dinner or whatever it is, um, we will usually cram six people onto a three-person couch and watch um, one of our favorite family TV shows. And the boys ask for the same one every time. They call it Joanna, uh, but it's really the show Fixer Upper. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I have so much fun every time. Uh, watching that show with them and just hearing their comments, um, you know, and uh, all along the way, uh, you'll hear George or Miles or Lucy and Annie say, oh, they shouldn't have picked that color. Oh, that's not going to work out. That's not going to go well. Um, they, yeah, shiplap was a good idea right there. Um, but we have, we have, as a family, drunk the Magnolia Kool-Aid. Uh, it was, I think, last year, Tally and her best friend um, made a pilgrimage to Waco. I think they walked around the silos sunwise seven times holding a pumpkin, <laughs> pumpkin spice latte in hand. And, uh, but, but what makes that show so fun and why we keep coming back and, and what we look forward to every time is the reveal. That moment that has been um, designed and orchestrated and built up to an anticipation so as to display to greatest possible effect the qualities and the beauties of, of its object. And the passage that we're going to get to look at this morning is what I would, would call and what the Bible reveals to be the greatest reveal in all of history. In fact, John the Baptist says the purpose for his entire ministry, the reason that he came baptizing with, with water, was so that Jesus would be revealed to Israel. So we see in, in this passage, in this account of Jesus' baptism at the River Jordan, an event which has been orchestrated by God to reveal and to display to the greatest possible effect his glory in his Son through his confirmation and commissioning to the office of the suffering servant king. So the passage we're going to look at together is found in Matthew in chapter 3. Matthew in chapter 3, verses 13 and following. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill 
all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Every verse in this text, nearly every word, we can see something about God's chosen servant, which reveals his glory. Let our prayer this morning be, as we unpack these truths, that the Holy Spirit of God would open our eyes to see and to savor Jesus Christ. We begin in verse 13, where the first thing that we see is God's servant revealed in his resolve. Let's look at verse 13 again. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Notice the clear intention. Jesus is deliberately setting out on a journey to a specific place to seek out a specific man to fulfill a single purpose. Now this verse signals an important transition in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ as he departs from Galilee and embarks for the Jordan. And Mark's gospel fills this in even a bit more uh, by telling us that Jesus left Nazareth of Galilee. So where was Nazareth for Jesus? It's okay to, to say it out loud. It's his hometown. This rural farming village in the mountains to the southeast of Galilee was the place where from about five or six years old, our Lord Jesus had lived and grown up in the house of his adopted father, Joseph, with his mother, Mary, his four younger brothers, and at least two younger sisters. Now, early church tradition has it that Joseph had died years before this time, and as the eldest son of his household, Jesus doubtless would have been working in Joseph's trade here in Nazareth to support his mother and his younger siblings. Here was his carpenter's shop. Here was the synagogue where we know it was his custom to gather with God's people on Shabbat. Here were the forest paths that he walked and the mountains where he would sit and commune with the Father. It was in Nazareth that Jesus grew up before him as a green shoot, quietly, without pomp or prestige, with no beauty that we should admire him. The people of Jesus' hometown knew him simply as Joseph's son. But now, there was a prophet in the wilderness of Judea, preaching at the top of his lungs, crying out, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And so it was time for Jesus to leave the place of his preparation and to embark on the path of obedience that the Father had set out for him. This verse reveals to us God's servant in his resolute commitment to the Father's plan as he leaves Nazareth and alone begins this, what would have been a, a three to four day journey to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. Um, as many of you know, for 
the, most of my um, uh, years of working, I've, I've been in, uh, in construction, uh, and I've, I've worked as an electrician. When Tally and I uh, first moved here to Lawrence with our family, I, I worked at uh, KU with their construction crew. And there was a guy, um, another electrician that I worked with on a daily basis, um, whose name, his name was Joe. And uh, I loved working with Joe because um, Joe could carry about 95% of a conversation all day long. And if I'm part of that conversation, that's really good because um, I don't like to talk a lot, but I like to listen. And Joe would almost always start the day with just the most random questions. Uh, things like, if, uh, if, if the skipper Gilligan and Hollywood Hulk Hogan were in a, in a death match, who would win? Uh, on a scale from 1 to 36, how likely do you think it is that the pyramids were built by aliens? And, uh, and so you can imagine my shock one day when Joe, who was not a Christian, turned to me and said, if Jesus was God and had never sinned, then why did he need to be baptized? And sadly, at that time, I did not have a good explanation for Joe. I kind of stumbled over something about him, him setting an example. Um, but it set me thinking. And this is the right question that we should be asking when we come to this text. Why was Jesus baptized? What does this mean? It's one we ought to ask because if we've been paying attention we recognize that the baptism of John always before was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So for Jesus, God's sinless servant to be baptized, on the face of it has a sort of tension or incongruity. John the Baptist himself expresses this in his reluctant response to Jesus as he comes to be baptized and he asks, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? In this, we see God's servant revealed in his humble submission. This is a really remarkable, even shocking statement by John. Here he is. His whole life has been about preparing God's people for the moment when the Messiah would be revealed. And this is the first thing that he does. It's remarkable. Now, there are a couple of different interpretations that Bible scholars have held about what is really happening here in, in what John says to Jesus and whether or not John really recognizes him as the Messiah at this time, which is going to strongly influence how we interpret the passage. Now, it is my belief based on the biblical evidence in this passage as well as in John in chapter 1 that the moment Jesus came to be baptized is the same moment that John first recognized him as the Messiah, even before the confirmation of his anointing by the Spirit. And that John's words here in verse 14, spoken to Jesus, are spoken in the fresh shock of that realization. So with that interpretation in place, let's think about this picture just for a moment as John suddenly realizes it's him. 
It's him. And as he's processing this, he at the same time realizes Jesus is waiting out to him not to baptize John, but to be baptized himself. Now, John, better than any other person on the planet, understood the Messiah's rank. He wasn't speaking hyperbolically when he said, the one who is coming after me is so high, is so worthy that I am not fit to untie his sandals, speaking of the most menial of tasks which a servant could perform for the master, which was to remove their shoes so their feet could be washed. John was stating a fact. John rightly assessed the surpassing majesty and worth of the one who was to come. And because of this, even John here was wholly unprepared and completely overwhelmed at the depths to which the chosen servant would humble himself in receiving baptism. So let's look now at Jesus' response to John, we find in verse 15, where we see both his humility and his unwavering submission to the Father's plan. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. John is saying, Lord, this doesn't seem right. And Jesus says, no, this is right. It is fitting. It is appropriate because this is exactly how the Father has designed it to be, to fulfill all righteousness. The word here for fulfill literally means to perfectly complete something to fully carry it out. And the righteousness to which Jesus refers is the righteousness of God that is on display through his plan of redemption. Jesus says, John, this is the fitting, this is the beautiful way to fulfill God's plan of redemption. Jesus' answer to John is an expression of his total submission to fully carry out the Father's plan. Then John consented, and he baptized Jesus. Can you place yourself there with the witnesses on the riverbank? Can you see this moment? As the king of kings wades out into the waist-deep muddy water, places himself in John's rough hands, closes his eyes, and is plunged, is baptized beneath the waves, and then immediately brought up again. In Mark's gospel, he tells us that Jesus was praying as he was baptized. We don't know what he was saying to the Father, but we know that his actions were singing, here I am, I have come to do your will. I want to bring us back to our question from before. What does this mean? What is this picturing? What is the significance of Jesus' baptism? And in seeking a biblical answer to this question, I believe it can be helpful for us to think about what baptism means as it relates to the believer. Believer's baptism is a physical sign that points to a spiritual reality. It's an act of obedience, signifying our redemption, our identification with Christ, 
and symbolizes our incorporation into him through faith. For the believer, baptism is a physical sign pointing to the spiritual reality of our new birth at conversion. And Jesus' baptism, like ours, is also a physical sign pointing to a deeper spiritual reality, that of his death on the cross, his burial and resurrection. In Luke in chapter 12, verse 50, Jesus speaks to this when he says, I have a baptism with which to be baptized. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. So just as believer's baptism points to our spiritual baptism at salvation, Jesus' baptism at the Jordan points to his baptism into death and raising by the glory of God to life at the cross. Just as our baptism identifies us with Christ, so does his baptism identify him with us. By this sign, the Son of God identifies himself with his people as the one who would assume the penal responsibility for their sins. This is Jesus taking on the role of federal headship. His submission to baptism at the Jordan River stands as a surety before the Father for his ultimate baptism at Calvary, where by his death, burial, and resurrection, he makes propitiation for the sins of God's people. See here the glory of God revealed in the submission of his servant. Let's continue reading in verse 16, where we see God's servant revealed in his commissioning. These, pass- these verses through the end of the passage um, reveal to us as well three different eschatological signs that are signaled by the word behold, or look at this. This is important. The first sign is the rending of the heavens that we read about in verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, look at this, the heavens were opened to him. So what is happening here exactly? Prior to the ministry of John the Baptist, Israel had gone through what we call the 400 silent years since God had last spoken to his people through a prophet. And it had now been 600 years since Ezekiel saw the Spirit of God depart from the temple. And God's people, through their idolatry, had rejected him, and apart from his presence with the faithful remnant, the glory of God had departed from Israel. Isaiah expresses this national sense of mourning and longing for the return of God's Spirit in Isaiah 64 and verse 1, where he says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And here at Jesus' baptism, as if in answer to that prayer, everything is changed when God literally tears a gap in the fabric of the universe signaling that the Spirit of God has now come to dwell with his people like never before in the person of Jesus Christ. 
Let's look at verse 17. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Throughout the Old Testament, wherever God commissioned or ordained a man to serve as a prophet, as a priest or as a king, he did so by having that man anointed with oil to, one, show their unique status as being a servant that is sanctified and set apart for his sovereign purposes. And two, to picture by that pouring out of the oil, God's pouring out of his spirit upon them to empower and to equip them for his service. The difference here being that whereas in all previous anointings, God had used a human mediator to perform the ceremony, here at Jesus' commissioning, there was no priest and there was no oil because God the Father himself is seen pouring out his spirit on his chosen servant, Jesus Christ, thus commissioning Jesus to his office as the Messiah and empowering and equipping him for that task. Isaiah 42 verse 1 says, I have put my spirit on him and will bring forth, and he will bring forth justice for the nations. The gospel of Matthew we ought to understand, is written for the purpose of presenting Jesus Christ to the reader as the King of the Jews and as the promised Messiah. And nothing could have held more significance to his point than for Matthew to share these three signs presented in this passage. The rending of the heavens, the Spirit descending on God's servant, and the heavenly voice speaking to him. Because to the Jews, these signs signal the arrival of the kingdom of God. The message of Jesus' anointing is clear. The king has come. Lastly, in verse 17, we see God's servant revealed in his confirmation. Let's read verse 17 together. And behold... There it is again. Look at this. Behold this. A voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. These words, thundering out from heaven over Christ, are a combination of the prophetic words spoken over the Messiah that we read at the beginning in Psalm 2 and in Isaiah 42. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. The combined use of these two different prophecies by the Father here at Jesus' baptism clearly reveals for us a mystery of the Messiah that had only been hinted at before. And that is, The servant is the son. The suffering servant that Isaiah saw, God's servant who would bring Jacob back to him, the one who by his knowledge would make many to be accounted righteous, the sin bearer, the one whom it was the will of the father to crush. The suffering servant is the son. He chose his son 
to bring his people back to him. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us, that we should be called the children of God. And this is love, not that we loved him, but that he loved us and gave his son to be the propitiation for our sins. I want us to notice something about this heavenly word, this voice, and the message that is given here. And uh, it's found in, in another gospel account, Mark in chapter 1, verse 11. Turn there if you would. In Mark in chapter 1, verse 11, we see the same heavenly voice saying, You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. Did you see it? In Matthew, the message is, Behold, this is my beloved Son. With him, I am well pleased. And what we see here in these two gospel accounts are, is one heavenly voice with two divine messages. A message of the public confirmation and acclamation of Jesus Christ and a private message to Jesus himself of the Father's love and affirmation. You are my son, my beloved. With you, I am well pleased. I think we have this tendency in reading through these narratives to kind of overemphasize the, the human element and write ourselves into the story and think that all of this is about us. But what we see at Jesus' baptism, at the very heart of this event, is a profoundly Trinitarian event where we see the perfect union of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit acting in concert together to bring about the confirmation and the commissioning of the Son to his role as God's chosen servant. So in light of all of this, how should we as the church respond? I believe that the Holy Spirit calls us to one thing, and that is to behold him. Simply behold him. For in beholding Jesus Christ as he is revealed to be in his word, in his baptism, we are changed into the same image. Behold him. You who are still in your sins, behold him as the only hope of your salvation. Turn from your sin, repent, and believe on him. You who have been baptized into him, behold Jesus, hope in his name. Behold him as he is seen in his baptism as God's chosen servant who would bring Israel back to him. 
of whom the Father says, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. See how Jesus fully carries out God's righteousness as our federal head, and how from his first steps on the road to Jordan to his last breath on the cross, fully carries it out so that we may receive the adoption as sons. Behold him, church, and hope in his name. We'll close by reading Matthew's quote from Isaiah 42 and Matthew chapter 12, verse 18. Yes, yeah, so you, you can turn there. Matthew chapter 12. Verse 18. Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Our Father, we thank you and we praise you. We glorify your name for the obedience and the humility and the submission of your Son, for the empowering of him to the work of salvation by your Spirit and the ordaining of all of this by your sovereign will. Lord, I pray that your word would go forth, would have its intended effect upon our hearts, that Jesus Christ would be magnified and that we would continue beholding him in your word, and worshiping him as we ought. We ask it in his name. Amen.